So, Berto, I read, I read an article on Psychology Today called Four Questions to Help You Get to Know Your Psychological Needs. And as I was reading it, I thought we could ask these questions of ourselves as a way of trying to get at our own psychological needs. What do you say, Berto? Sounds interesting. Let's do it. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. My name is Umberto Castaneda, and I design trapezoidal shoeboxes. So again, this is an article in Psychology Today by Alice Boyes, PhD. The first question is, what's, and people listening out there, you can play along to try to triangulate your own needs. And I think that this these sets of the set of questions is definitely a conversation starter. I, I I can't imagine it being the end all be all, but I think it's you know it's good to ask these questions of ourselves. So number one, Burrow, what's the best compliment you received this year and why? So can it be just on the edge of this year? Meaning like it happened in yeah, December. Yeah, yeah, okay. Sure. <laughs> and by the way, uh, to comment on why this question gets at our own needs, why do you think that is? We look for validation and also sometimes we like when we're very little we want to hear from our parents that we're doing good at things and then now that we're adults we want to hear from our peers or other adults that we're doing good yeah well (laughs) uh, you know the question what's the best compliment you've received recently really highlight because you might have received hopefully a number of compliments but the one that was the best oh yeah it might in all likelihood in all likelihood it's an area that you care about yeah. yeah, and and some and it was when you were complimented on it, you felt a need being met in a right. way that doesn't usually get met, yeah. and then you highlighted that compliment as very important. So, I don't think that's right. always the case, but I think it's it's a good starting point. So, what's the best compliment you've received? So after my uh, anniversary party in December, I went karaoke. Mm. And I sang several songs. One of the songs I sang was one of my standbys, Elton John, Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me. That night? That night, yeah. Yeah. Where'd, where'd you go? Just a little dive place right in, Tacoma, in Lakewood. Mm-hmm. It's like literally a dive bar that you just go and see. I wasn't invited. Well, you had left. Like, this was like after folks had already left. Oh. Like, three of us were like, hey, let's go have it. And we weren't going karaoke. Oh. We were just going to go have a drink nearby. Oh, okay. We found a place nearby that happened to have karaoke. <laughs> That's weird because it must have been right after I left because I was one of the very last people there. Well, so you left and then we. I went back to my mom's house. Yeah. And my brother decided he was done for the night. So it was like Eric and Shun. They were the, the two people left. Oh. And uh, since the two of them and, and myself hadn't seen Shun for a while, we're like, yeah, let's just go have a drink. Yeah. We looked up nearby my mom's and there was this bar. We're like, oh, let's just go there. We got there and there was karaoke. <laughs> and we're like, oh. So I sang. Eric doesn't sing, but Shun sang, I sang. Uh, but one of the songs I sang was this Elton John song, which I regularly sing. And I think that's the first time I met you, you were singing that song. Pro- yeah, actually, that's how we met. <laughs> it's a very theatrical, long yes. song. Very narcissistic. Yes. <laughs> I love it. Yes. So I do it. And afterwards, this guy, this this older guy, he's probably in his you know late 50s, something like that, comes up to me and he compliments me. He's like, you know, like, I forget exactly, but it's like, wow, you really nailed that. You, you hit it out of the park, whatever, you know. And he plays in, in a band. He, he plays in multiple bands, actually. He plays all around Tacoma and has got shows. He invited me to one of his shows. And, uh, and I just, I was like so elated about it. I, you know, I thought it was, um, it was really cool because 
I, I was hearing recognition about singing, and so singing is something I, I've always loved doing since I was a little baby, and music, which I love, and it was great hearing from a peer musician, let's say, hey, you did a great job at this thing you value. So, so why was this compliment meaningful to you? Because, you know, again, it was in an area where it's been not a recent passion. This has been since I was in the crib, right? Singing specifically. I was in a crib singing. Uh, music in general is one of my passions. It was also not a random person. It was a fellow musician who's actually a singer themselves and sings in bands. So I felt like peer validation mm. and uh, un. Uh, it wasn't requested. You know, no one told them. So it wasn't someone I know. He didn't have to say anything nice to me. What is the compliment? Is it a compliment on your talent, meaning your just innate ability or your style your choices it validates that i have some worth in this world <laughs> you know basically it validates that i can you know sing that's something i like doing and that, that someone's like oh actually that sounded pretty good you know it validates that uh you know it validates like or it feeds my narcissism a bit you know like hey you know this thing that i think i want to be adulated about Someone's adulating me about it. Okay, so what need is underneath that public... Like I said, telling me that I have some worth in this world. That you're worth, that you have worth. Yeah. Meaning that you walk around not necessarily knowing if you if you have worth? Yeah, like most people, sadly. <laughs> and yeah. your uh, worth vector or what you commonly will go to with finding out or establishing you have worth is through being on stage that kind of thing that's one of the main ones yes yeah. and and since i uh, th there's another aspect to it since i haven't been on stage for years now yeah it also met a little bit of that you know it's like oh i, I this podcast doesn't feel like that it's different you? this counts i bet it's not singing i mean you know it's yeah. it's a different angle you know? But your narcissistic needs can can be met through the podcast. It does, but usually the, the audience is invisible when we're talking, right? right? Whereas this was a direct feedback from an audience member. Huh. Did you hear that, people? They, <laughs> they want well, no, so when I read very nice comments on the YouTube or whatever from something I said or did or whatever... It feeds my same little little Bardo pieces, right? Okay, okay. It's like, hey, you're 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 worthwhile. So <laughs> that the need is worth, yeah. not necessarily to be seen as a good singer or an interesting podcaster, but to feel worthy. Yeah, that's the need. Interesting. So going on with more of the questions from this article, was the compliment you received about a quality you highly value? Yes. Yes. Did you, did it give you confidence in yourself? Yes, actually it definitely did because uh, leading up the year leading up to me finding out I had thyroid problems, I actually started having trouble where I couldn't sing and I got really worried. I didn't know why all of a sudden I'd be well, was, and you literally had surgery well, near. Late, yeah, that was later. Yeah, near your larynx, right. which had you the risk have, of completely cutting your ability to sing completely. Right, but e but again, even before I even knew that that was anything related to thyroid, I was starting to have these problems where I couldn't sing all of a sudden, and I didn't realize that it's because my nerves, there, the thyroid was pushing against the nerve, hmm. and uh, it was affecting that whole area. But all of a sudden, I had to go to a, like a speech therapist and be like, why? Like something weird's happening. And I did some therapy and it kind of got better, but it didn't fully go away. And then I come to find out, like you said, I have to have this surgery that's going to go right there and has as a listed side effect, possible side effect, you might lose your voice. <laughs> 
famous case of Rod Stewart, who had a thyroidectomy and had to have voice rehab because his voice was severely affected afterwards. So I was like, oh no. And then after the surgery, I started taking voice lessons again, which I hadn't in 15 years or something. Now, being able to sing, I can relate to obviously, and and it's a, it's a creative expression, it's an emotional expression, but was also your path to worth being threatened. Yeah, be, well, in the sense that, like I said, dude, when it's something that my mom re- tells me, hey, you would be standing in your crib before you could even make actual words. So it's a part of your identity. Sing, yeah, it's my identity. It's like who you are. And I have this relationship with the the tenuous thread that I had between myself and my mom after she left was musical. Really? She sent me a tape oh. with my three favorite songs on it on one side and the Brady Bunch theme on the other side. It was Top of the World, uh, Rocky Mountain High, and Sing. Uh, the first and uh, third are Carpenter songs, and then there's uh, Bob uh, Bob <laughs> Denver. <laughs> What's his name? John. John Denver. Thanks. Not Bob Denver. I sang those songs, and I every time I sang them, I thought of my mom because we used to sing them together, and blah, blah. And then I remember when I visited her, one of the first times I saw her after she had left, I was, I think, five or four, and it's probably five, and she gave me uh, Annie the little orphan Annie tape and we listened to it together and I learned all the songs and she told me how she had taken me to see the play but I didn't remember but then I so there's a lot of musical connection and not just music singing and my mom sings in a choir like for church a lot of this was tied into Mm. both my personality my trauma also what I love doing Mm -hmm. if you ask me just like when I was a teenager I loved getting in my car or my mom's car (laughs) And singing in the car and blasting and with friends and, you know, all yeah. these things. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a huge part of who I am. Yeah, me, me too. So, therefore, hearing, hey, that thing that's a huge part of who you are, I enjoyed it. And I'm someone who's a peer of you and doing that thing you love that makes you who you are. Yeah. That's valid. The other question here from the article, did it help you see a way forward with a problem? So, not so much a problem. However... Uh, I've been jamming every Wednesday with my friend Eric, almost every Wednesday. And um, I was kind of feeling a little stuck because we, you know, I had a couple of songs that I had written a long time ago. And when I wrote them, uh, you know, I, they were a little higher than my range because sometimes I do that when I'm excited, I'll write something that I can't quite hit. But um, And I just was like, I don't know if I can sing this. But then I thought, well, why don't I bring him to my, after after this compliment, I thought, oh, I wonder if I, because I've been workshopping that song with my voice teacher. So I thought, what if I brought a couple of these songs? You have a current voice teacher? I have a voice teacher. Since I had my operation, oh. I started doing a once a week voice teacher. Wow. Because I needed to recover. Because after the operation, I had to do like actual recovery. I couldn't quite yeah. sing very well at first. And so I brought my songs to him and we workshopped them and like they got better. I'm jealous. I, I feel like I should get a voice teacher. I, I had very brief voice training in high school. In, but you actually were in choir though. Like you learned. Yeah. Yeah. See. And there was, there was a useful. fair amount of technique yeah. that was taught, you know, breathing and other kinds of things. I didn't know any of that stuff. But I've, but I've forgotten most of it. Yeah. In fact, just as a side note, I'm getting the band back together. Uh, right. Similar to you. And we're starting to practice. 
And I noticed that as I'm singing, it's because it's been a while since I've formally sang yeah. on stage or into a PA in front of other people. And especially when you're part of a band, like they depend on you to pull your weight. You can't just be in your car, just sort of meekly, like <laughs> following a tune. Like everyone is, especially the band that I'm in, the Strokes tribute band. They're all really strong musicians. Yeah, they're all really strong musicians and they show up, they know their stuff. And when they're on stage, they completely nail it just note for note. Everything is spot on. And I'm the weak link, if anything, in this band. Because, I mean, I'm, a, I'm an okay singer. I'm not the best. But Julian Casablancas, the lead singer of the Strokes, is by far like the most distinctive yeah, I would put it a little differently because I happen to really like your voice and I know a lot of our patrons really love your voice. You have a really nice voice. It's just that it does just because you have a nice voice doesn't mean you can sing every singer's songs and styles. Right. Strokes, and you do a good job, but Strokes is hard. Yeah. His, <laughs> he has a, Julian Casablanca, the lead singer of the Strokes, has a deceptively good voice. And especially as the albums, future albums, he starts to exhibit his, his upper range. Mm. He has like a Mariah Carey multi octave range. Yikes. It's, he is. He, he, I did not know that. <laughs> but he doesn't come across that way because yeah. he comes across like this slacker. Slacker right? who's just had a lot of booze. <laughs> but if you actually notate or even just try to sing along, especially throughout the catalog, catalog yeah, yeah, of their songs, you will. He will go from a, oh, no. a solid baritone, even upper bass range, yeah. to soprano. I mean, oh my and gosh. nail it too, you know, and really do well and have uh, <laughs> vocal That's stylings tough. where he's not just singing the notes; he is emphasizing certain moods sure. within the notes, and it's hard. <laughs> and yeah. so, anyway, yeah. I. Um, I, I was starting to sing with the band again, and I was noticing that like I wasn't as good as I remember being before the pandemic. Mm. And but you also had in practice. <laughs> and, and one of the things that I needed to remind myself to do was to breathe. Yeah, breathing, breathing. is everything. I also probably have a really weak diaphragm. Yeah, <laughs> really weak uh, uh, rib cage. I remember in high school, our teacher who was we called her Dragon Lady because she was very <laughs> hard on us, strict, but she also was well known for. Mrs. Watson, LaVon Watson, very good teacher and would always produce very highly accomplished vocal jazz ensembles that we were in. Mm. And, what, and she would just be yelling at us all the time. It was a whiplash. <laughs> and, and yeah, and she would be telling us to breathe and she would also be telling us that if we didn't practice more with our diaphragm and our rib cage that she would make us work out oh she would make us run around the track interesting uh during class so uh -huh. it was a threat that she never actually followed or maybe she did once but her biggest complaint against us was our breathing techniques our breathing. and okay. our breathing capacity and our breathing yeah. force and our breathing control and so i'm uh having to relearn that again. yeah and so it'd be nice if i had a, I had a vocal coach Anyway, well, um, let me know if you need a referral. He's really good. Yeah. <laughs> well, but let me answer your question for you, for you, or elaborate on Because the question is, did it help you see a way forward with a problem? And for you, you're like, oh, the problem is I am trying to get better. Or I'm trying to get more into singing or I'm underestimating my singing ability. So I want to incorporate some of these harder songs. But underneath that is a problem of worth. And I know you play it off yes, really well because sure. you come across like you're Mr. Confident all the time. But like anyone else, you have vulnerabilities and you have question marks as to your actual worth, the true you, not the person that 
gives other people pleasure through your creativeness you know right but 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 there's something very specific here which is that i've sang this song for years but recently i have been bringing elton john and billy joel songs specifically to my teacher going hey i want to get better at these songs and we worked on them and I, I kind of like my brain was like, I wonder, it's probably not a coincidence that I've been working on these songs with my teacher and I actually got explicitly good feedback about one of them. I And that's where like a little light bulb went on. I was like, why the hell am I not bringing my own songs that I've written that so I'm you, struggling So you had a goal of becoming better. But but then underneath, there was a weird thing about like, did I not feel my songs are real songs? Like they can't be worked on? Oh. You see what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I can work on these other people's songs because they're real songs. But maybe not my song. My song's just like my songs. That's not a real thing. I, and there was like, well, why can't I just bring those songs? Yeah. And we and I did, and I improved on them. <laughs> yeah. Which is, it is tied to the worth thing. It's like, well, I don't, you know, my, my stuff isn't worth it. Do, do you walk around knowing that you have worth? I mean, I think so. <laughs> but... <laughs> But there's the, so as you know, there, there's the outer Berto, there's the middle Berto, and then there's the inner Berto. The outer Berto, absolutely. And I think the middle Berto, yes. But the inner Berto might not know that, you see, or not always. And that that's where I think the the feelings come in. Mm-hmm. The, oh, that touched my inner Berto. <laughs> now, there's nothing wrong with seeking worth through these things. It's an expression of your personality, of your creativeness, of your hard work, of your emotional life. You know, it's it's quite connected. You know, it, there's a temptation to say like, well, this is a superficial narcissistic thing. It's not real. And thus it doesn't actually get at the core of your inner Birdo's worth. But right. I, I don't think that's true. As long as, yeah. as you're doing it, that you have some attention paid to am I actually going in a direction where I'm answering the question as to whether or not I have worth? Because you can go down a road of narcissism where all you're seeking is other people seeing you as awesome rather than there's nothing wrong with depending on other people complimenting you or liking what you're doing as long as it's also in line with what you want, right? Right. The pitfall of narcissism is you don't even really know what you want and you're just trying to come across like you're an awesome person. Right. Because it distracts you from facing the fact that you believe you're worthless. Yeah. Well, and I think, so I think that that was what, where I was at, like right around where you met me. Because what happened is, I'm mentioning the multiple levels of me, right? And that, not so just can, me. Can I pause people. you? So in the movie of your life, yeah. there's the, along this theme, there's you singing Elton John when I met you. Yeah. Literally the, the moment <laughs> I met you. And the underlying foundation of you singing that song, and then there's this whole journey, <laughs> and then it's you singing it the other the other night, uh, and it, it and again you get complimented in a similar way, right? But it means something completely different, right? And then the credits roll. <laughs> That's right, and then it's over. But no, it is true, and and here's the here's the difference. Well, what did it mean when? Yeah, what well, did it because mean when, when I started my musical journey when I was little. I never saw myself as a musician at all, ever. Like, I liked singing. I would get compliments from people, including my family, and then... Uh, so you were never in choir or anything? Never in choir. Why? Well, I, I'll tell you one reason, because one time I tried out for choir, and the the teacher was like, oh, no, you're not good at this. Bye. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. But I didn't, I didn't care. Like, I just liked singing. 
But I never thought of myself as like one day I'll be a musician. Not one moment did I. So weird because it's so different for me because I I was in band or choir from fifth grade yeah, through, no. through, through 12th grade. And same thing with instruments. I, I my, my cousin was teaching me a little bit on his organ, so I learned like how to play Let It Be when I was like 14 or something. But I never thought, oh, I could do this. That thought never crossed my mind. When I moved here was the first time that thought got put in my mind by my friends who were in a band. Because they, I meet these people and they're in a band and, they're, and I'm like, well, I like music. And, and they're talking about how they need a keyboard. I'm like, my brother has a keyboard, you know? And so all of a sudden, a little mini light bulb goes off like, what? Wait a minute. Could I be a musician? Mm-hmm. But then what started developing was that persona. Like, oh, I could be a musician. And then the more I learned about music and the more I got into this band thing, I'm like, wait, could I be the next Beatles? I could be the next Beatles. To the point where when I got to college and I roomed with Shun, I literally started thinking of him as John and me as Paul. Yeah. It's like, oh my gosh. Yeah, I had a really similar... be the Beatles. Yeah, I had a really similar path in high school. I also... I was in band. I played trumpet, yeah. and I also sang in, in choir. Less so, I was much more of a trumpet person than I was a singer. But I was very similar to you. And then in early high school, I was obsessed with the Beatles and other bands. I would fantasize about being Paul McCartney in the Beatles or something yeah. like that. Or I would even fantasize about forming a band with friends of mine who were musicians, but I wasn't, I didn't consider myself a musician. I was like, well, I'll form a band together and I'll just be like, the manager? I will know. I, I was like, I'll be the singer and that'll probably work itself out, right? Like, <laughs> you know, because I, 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 I knew one of my best friends was a drummer. Okay. And Chris. another one of my really great friends was, and he, and was he was Chris, the drummer. No, oh, that was a different different guy. I mean, he he was also another one of my yeah. friends that was a drummer. But anyway, and I uh, was already fantasizing about being in a band before I even thought I would be a musician. Then That's interesting. In mid-high uh, school, my girlfriend, who was this, she was like this little Barbara Streisand, and absolutely forced me and coerced me into singing a duet with her at a, at a talent show. <laughs> Because I'm like, I'm not a singer. I don't know why you're asking, but she's like, but it'll be really romantic and beautiful. And <laughs> and she was a she was older. She was a couple years older, and it was her last talent show, and she wanted right. to go out with a bang. And in fact, she was the MC for the entire talent show. She okay. loved being on stage. I hated being on stage. <laughs> I was absolutely terrified. I sing, and it didn't go terribly. And it was at that moment I was like, oh, actually. Maybe I could be that. And then there were other musicians, Huber being right. one of them, that were also playing in the talent show. And I was like, hey, let's let's form a band. Let's form a band. Yeah, I actually just got other guys in the in the talent show. <laughs> uh, and then the, the guitarist, bassist, I he didn't have a guitar. He, he needed a, an acoustic guitar with a mic in it because we okay. were going to start recording or something. So we were at an army surplus store in Redmond and I... There was for a hundred dollars on the wall. They were they were selling a, a really crappy Mateo, which no one even knows that brand. Acoustic guitar with a mic on the inside where you can just plug oh it in with gosh. a battery. And so I bought it for the band. I bought it for him because as a singer, I didn't have to buy any right. equipment. You know, uh, uh, every the drummer had to spend all the money on the drums, the guitarist and the bassist. They had their amps and their guitars and everything. And I'm just so, so I'm like, well, I can contribute. I'll spend a hundred bucks from my yeah. savings to buy this guitar. But it's for the guitarist. But I'm like, well, if I bought it, I'm going to bring it home. So I started bringing it home, and I just started futzing around with it. And <laughs> then one thing led to another, and I was 
immediately writing music on this guitar. That's interesting. Even though I didn't know how to play. Right. And I'd, no one had ever taught me how to write music. You just had a natural knack. I just had a, well, I... Th- well, and you had absorbed something from your choir. And also from just being a massive fan of music my yeah. entire life. You know, I, from an early age, and also in church, yeah. I I don't know why we're going down this road. No, but. no, but but so I, I, I can totally relate because same thing where... I had. It's just funny that you and I both wanted to be in a band before we even right. thought of ourselves as musicians. Right. That's narcissism. That, sure. But then, you know, what happened is by the time I'm in college, now I actually start depending on that dream mentally. I'm like, right, I'm going to be like a Beatles, like huge. Right. So I'm going to drill down on this because I think that's what this article is trying to get at. But actually, let's take a break first. What do you say? Let's do it. All right, we're back from the break. So the question I have for you is at that moment, and maybe for the next 10 years, we can assume that there was a part of your motivation to be in a band or your dreams of being the next Beatles was in line with what you can currently identify with, which is the expression of your creativity, which anyone could agree, everyone can agree that that is an important need that we have for a lot of people have a need to create, a need to participate in that and also you could argue that there's a pseudo spiritualness to musicians and performing together or playing together when two musicians or more musicians for me anyway when i'm gelling with other musicians live right it is transcendent you know it's like nothing else the feeling that you get when you're all in sync and you can just sense that everyone's enjoying it oh yeah playing it it, it's euphoric uh, and there's really nothing else like it. <laughs> it really is, yes. And and so we don't have to pathologize it. We, it's just a, a good thing that we can hold up and say it's worth it. That part, totally agree with. <laughs> and the question I have is going back to when you were at that stage of your life for the next 10 years, say in your 20s and early 30s, was there also a part of you that was in a fool's errand searching for worth? For well, do I matter in the world by overshooting the creativity, by needing to become super famous and super powerful? So, A, yes, all of the above. But but it, like that's what I'm what I'm getting at is that no one, I, I like I said, if you had asked me at like 12, like, what do you want to do? None of it would have included music. I would have talked about neuroscience. I would have talked about computers. I would have talked about a lot of things. Not once would I have mentioned music. It's very telling that at 12, 13, 14, that was the case. What, do you, what is it telling? What is it telling? That music was not part of my um, worth identity, if you will. It was yeah. just there. It was free. It was, I just love singing. So what does it mean that you started attaching your worth identity? Well, so then, and this happens to a lot of musicians, because <laughs> I know it, because I've had those conversations with so many people. You start actually dreaming, because the people that do make it, they also dreamed big and they did make it, right? Yeah. So you start seeing these documentaries and you watch and we, we would watch them together, look, and then you're like, man, we're, the, we're like these guys, we could do this. But then it starts not happening. Now, is it because you didn't work hard enough? Is it because this, that, the other thing? You don't have the right songs, you don't have the right look, whatever, it's not working. Meaning it's no one's coming by to sign you. There's no throngs of fans knocking down your door. And so, not explicitly, but inside your head, you start asking your question, hey, 
Is it because I suck? Is it because I'm not worth it? Is it because I as just- As a human being? As a human being? I mean, right? is, that, is that what you're saying? Yeah. But again, none of these thoughts ever go through your head explicitly, but it's there. And so over the years, I think what starts happening is you're like, wait a minute, is no one going to validate me here? Am I actually- Am I actually not worth it? Am I actually this bad? Is it really like, am I just so the (laughs) the dream entered, and then you started to depend on that outcome without knowing? It's like a drug. It's like yeah, right. And and a compounding problem is that I have more than one dream at the time. I'm I'm actually if if you had asked me in college, are you trying to become a professional musician? I would have said, well, no, 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 no. I am, I'm a computer guy, but at the same time, like the truth is I have this dream. I want to make these boxes for tennis shoes. Were there times in your life when you felt less self-worth and thus more neediness to be seen or complimented for your music? I'm sure. Yeah. Because that would be yeah. the, that would be what this question, this series of questions is trying to get at. Yeah. Like, but because it's interesting that just the questions around like what's the best compliment you received how this you know recently yeah. how, how this yeah. uh, mushrooms into this much bigger conversation right, right, which right. is the point of this right well and I had a lot of weird setbacks around this for example I'm in high school practicing now I am in a band and I'm practicing on my piano and I'm singing and my mom yells from the top of the stairs stop that infernal racket yeah I, so, I had an almost identical experience <laughs> when I was a kid. But for someone who has attached meaning to music with my mom, right? Mm. And all of a sudden, the thing that's connected to that is telling me that it's an infernal racket. Yeah. Again, I didn't think about it explicitly at that time, but it must have wounded me. Yeah. And then time goes on, and there were a few times where someone told me I wasn't good or that didn't sound good or, or whatever, right? And that would have chipped away at me, you yeah. know? That plus the the fact that I wasn't becoming the Beatles. So then, I, then what I think is that when you fast forward to now that I am not actually as wounded and I have more tools and all these things, and I have been putting work towards something, but still, when I hear this compliment, I'm like, ah, oh, thank you. Like, yeah, I needed that. <laughs> yeah, maybe a remnant of that need, but also just a normal need to be recognized. Right. Uh, not every creative person needs to be recognized, but but most do. Yeah, uh, uh, it's a it's not the core reason as to why creative people create, but it is part of it. The way that I'll frame this for you and me is that I had a similar need for narcissistic validation, but because I don't know if this is exactly true, but at least in this arena, I think I was wounded less than you were along these lines. And thus, when it became pretty, or at least seemingly very, because I had the same, especially that you missed the window of grunge, but I was yeah. ground <laughs> zero for grunge. Right. I played in the same clubs just maybe six, 12 months after Soundgarden and Nirvana you know, OK Hotel, the Ditto, the Central, um, right, right. Other, other kinds of venues like this, Rock Candy, Off Ramp, these places. You could have been a contender. And there <laughs> were people, there were people with money who were saying, we want to be your producers. Right. We want to hitch our wagon to you. And because you guys are awesome, you guys are the next Smashing Pumpkins or you're the next whatever. And it was seemingly 
possible. There were people that were even paying for us to go to the studio because we couldn't afford to go right. to the studio. It was very expensive. And it was, um, you know, it seemed like a, a possibility. And we worked really hard at it. Yeah. And we were young and we were, you know, we had all the thing, the bells and the whistles and the, the outfits and all that kind of stuff. And, and I mean, I wasn't putting all my eggs in that basket. I was yeah. all along always going to school and working on a career and eventually decided to become a therapist all along these lines. But, you know, there's always this possibility. It's like maybe, but at a certain point, it started to become, it started to seem less and less likely as I was maybe 23, 24, 25-ish. And that started, I don't know if it was explicit, but I started to wonder, well, maybe this will never happen. And I had to reckon with that. And then I fairly quickly adjusted to the fact that it would never happen. And I was okay with that. And I was okay with having the music be what it was, which was, I love to write and record and occasionally perform. And probably most people don't really give a crap, but I give a crap. I love writing and recording and I love listening back to my creations. Other people will, they'll say, oh, that's great. Or, oh, that's or that's nice. Or they might find one song that they like to listen to occasionally by choice without me there. You know? Right, right. But for the most part, 99% of the fan base of my music is me. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm okay with that. And I and I started to actually pull back on bothering other people with my music. You know, I, I, I'd say, hey, if you want to listen to this, go for it. But if not, don't worry about it. And I adjusted to that because my need for that narcissistic supply wasn't very great. Whereas I, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but for you, because of your wounds being deeper and, you know, for obvious reasons, going back to your early childhood, the need for the narcissistic supply to be a possibility lasted a lot longer. Again, you can refute all of this if you want to. So much so, by by the time I met you, I think you were 33-ish. Right. You still had that dream. Well, no, so so we were in a band together. <laughs> the thing that cured me was when we finished our, our missionary album. Okay. And the process of making the missionary album and finishing it. I'm not saying that's the only thing that cured me because I was in therapy. I did like there's a lot of factors. Right. But that was that was actually huge because you you just mentioned that you're fine that you're your biggest fan. Yeah. I found the same thing. I was like, you know what? I love my fucking songs. And then when we actually had an album and, and it was like, it's something like healed a bit. Like I was like, oh, it felt so fulfilling. Well, I, I want, you know, I, and I don't want to insert any, it don't, don't go along with this, but you and I in the ramp up to making that CD, which is still on Spotify, I believe. Yeah. And, and iTunes. Yeah. Yeah. You if you just go to, to missionary, Mich- you can't just look for missionary. It's hard because there's lots of missionaries. So look for missionary and Aquarius or le- uh, sorry, le- leprosy, leprosy or all for you or yeah. Aquarian. Or, right. Yeah. You can find the album there. And Berto and I each wrote, we would alternate writing songs and singing the songs that we had written and worked very much with each other and worked really hard together also with the musicians in our band we rehearsed a lot and we worked a lot on our stage perform our stage show but for me i had given up long ago on quote unquote making it i i wanted to become successful in that right. band but i had no aspiration and maybe really no desire well to- when, when you met me though and i was with with shun yeah we both were were rekindling 
that last hope right that we would and i remember being at odds with the two of you right um i mean there was a part of me that was like yeah let's let's, let's try see, it let's give it our let, college try yeah let's see how how far we can yeah. take this let's uh, we would have band meetings and talk about how we would market our band, yeah. like the outfits we would wear right. and our logos and artwork and everything. And I was totally on board with all that stuff and, and considered it fun. But sometimes the energy between the two of you, yeah. it was like life or death. Right. Well, and trust me, between the two of us, one of us, it was even. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but you're right. So everything you've observed is accurate. I went through phases. But my point is, is that I wonder if I rubbed off on you during the making because the missionary oh, yeah. album, you and I were equals and we were highly collaborating and involved with each other. And at no point would I have been talking about making it or anything. Nope. And so I was wondering, and again, you can refute no, 100%. this, that it would influence you. A hundred percent. Like I would credit you with a hundred percent of that experience. First of all, I would not have finished an album without you. A. B. The approach to the album was sure be perfectionist about getting the tracks right but not about like are we gonna be appealing to the masses none of that just bullshit. make it something just that we want we to wanted it yeah and and that was so whitney houston greatest love of all that's what i found i found through that process and then getting that result that to this day when i pop that in and i hear those songs i'm like happy and i think i need one fan and that's me yeah now I'm not super happy with my yeah, that's that's fine with, with but you're my not songs like wounded by it you're just no listen but but the the problem I just is want that, to be clear that but I had, most of my creations I cringe at I had been through these waves through college and then after college where I would abandon music for a while because it wasn't happening and then then I get busy with other stuff my 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 uh, shoebox business was taking off and then all of a sudden, a, a new renaissance would happen. So then I'm like, I would talk to someone like, you, you wanna, you're learning drumming? You wanna start a band? Sure. And then so we start the original missionary. Yeah. And I'm like, maybe this will happen. Well, that's what it was like when I met you. You were singing the Elton John song and I wasn't in a band and hadn't been in a while. I had, I had always been writing and recording casually. Right. But at that point, I was kind of in a low point of yeah. activity. I, when I met you and we had a couple of drinks and I, you were, you and Shun were like, oh, you know, you sang that song really well. And, you know, and then at some point came, you guys were like looking for a keyboardist. Yeah, because well, we were both on a rebound as well. Yeah. Because I, that first incarnation of Missionary flamed out and I was wounded again because I was, I wouldn't say I was kicked out, but I was all but kicked out and I left. And, and. I was like, oh man, this sucks. And then I, I stopped for a while. Why did they kick you out again? Well, like I said, it was, they did not kick me out, to be fair. I left because uh, I was getting some very harsh criticism and feedback from the one of the person, one of the people. Yeah. And did, I wasn't, I was like, I don't, I don't want to deal with this. They didn't so like the style. I was out. Well, she, she, no, didn't, was, she didn't like the style. It was more, it was weirder than that. Oh. Someone else that was in the industry had given feedback to her that I was karaoke at best. <laughs> By the way, that person was right, but- What do you mean? We, at the time, I was karaoke at best. Well- It was singing What does that I had mean? A, meaning I needed a lot of growth. No. But, but listen, I'm being realistic, but it doesn't art matter. Art is art, man. Art is art, but listen, the important thing is that when you're in a band together, you're family. Yeah. And there's ways to approach things. Yes. All right. So I felt like I didn't need to be there, so I left. And 
they went on, they, they renamed the band, they went on with another thing. And I went on and I... And, and to be clear to listeners, from my memory of the story that you said, that you told me before, they were mean and harsh and not considerate of your feelings, very discounting. It wasn't like, hey, can you work on this issue? Because I, I feel if you work on this, it could be... Mm, to be fair to them, I bet you they would characterize it as I had a huge chip on my shoulder. And as soon as they brought up these problems, I just left. Oh, really? But to be fair to me... The approach that was followed was really hurtful. Yeah. I am not still holding on to any grudges. I think it was fine. We had fun while it lasted. I have fond memories and a tattoo. I can't believe this whole episode is just you and me talking about music and, and our bands. But, yeah. <laughs> but So I'm in this band with you and Shun. The two of you are seemingly totally in the mindset of we're going to be gigantic. We're going to be the next, you know, for yeah. Shun, it would be, we're the, we're going to be the next Oasis. Oasis. Yes. <laughs> and for you, you're like, I'm, at least blur. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're like, I'm, we're going to be the next, I don't know what you would have thought. Like a Radiohead or something. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, no, we're not. But, but, I, but I never said anything. Sure, sure, sure. And I didn't think we weren't talented. I just thought there's, there's just there's just really no chance one because there's no chance and two we've kind of aged out of that we're in our 30s yeah. it's not yeah. likely to happen it could happen but anyway well, the, in other, but, in other so words, so you, it, it culminated you were open to the possibilities but you yeah. weren't counting on it no and i wasn't <laughs> yeah. thinking it would happen and i i saw the energy from you and i i wanted to sort of draft on that energy because it was fun you know it's yeah. fun to think about bands and right. do marketing photos and, and the stuff. shows were fun yeah and i thought we gelled well together and everything but anyway it culminated in you and shun being totally on board with this hiring a consultant right. to make us into pop stars and it was sold to me that because you met him this consultant you said to me he's like yeah he he worked with one of those bands the the, <laughs> the white tees or yeah. what was that band in the the plain white tees yeah plain white tees yeah, yeah. You're like, he worked with Plain White Tees and, and got them to be famous, and, and they have a hit song, and, and so he's going to do that for us. In my head, I'm like, no, he's not. And <laughs> and two, I didn't have the money to pay for it. Right, and, right, right. and you were like, we're going to split. We've already been down this road yeah, in terms yeah. of like you were in a phase where you w didn't want to foot the bills anymore. I had, I had oh, yeah, I'm tr I was trying to get out of one dungeon, not yeah. realizing I was still in another dungeon. <laughs> yeah, still in a dungeon that yeah. one, you were wanting to needing perhaps you know and again getting back to this compliment that you were needing to demonstrate your worth by becoming the next radiohead and you were disregarding my feelings about it right. because i was giving subtle messages that i didn't really care and two couldn't afford it and there were multiple costs you know we had to hire him and and i did i i, I bucked up and paid yeah. my portion my third but there were multiple sessions of dollars <laughs> there were multiple sessions yeah, with yeah. this guy and you know and i had an open mind with this yeah, guy yeah. i was like i've never talked with a pop music consultant <laughs> before but i'll tell you when we did end up having our first consultation with him i'm like this guy is i mean he's fine but He's. This isn't anything more than I yeah. would get if I just talked with anyone about yeah, music. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I don't know if I've talked about this before, but this the journey. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I've talked. But I want to. I yeah, want to say. I want to. I want to say it again. Which is his assignment to us was his homework for us was to identify a pop song right. that we liked, and right. we would analyze it in this consultation meeting as to what made it a transcendent top ten hit. You know. Yeah. And then we would learn from why that song made it and try to incorporate those 
lessons to our own songwriting. Yeah. And you you and Shun had I think pretty standard or at least to him anyway. Yeah. I song, forget what I picked, but it wasn't that controversial. Yeah, to to our consultant, they he signed off on your songs yeah. as like, "Oh, those are good examples." I brought Don't Stop Believing by Journey. Now, pre-Sopranos. Yeah. And and pre-Glee. Yeah, definitely pre-Glee. Yeah. So for the people out there who are younger, you might only know Don't Stop Believing because of Glee or or yeah. because of Sopranos. Just by now it's everywhere. Like everyone knows it. It yeah. keeps coming up. And certainly it was a big enough hit, yeah. but it's from literally 1980. Yeah. I love that album, listen to it all the time. And, and by I, the way, that does not sound like a 1980 song. Right. 1980, 8-0, yeah. okay? And so I love that album, and I really love that song, and it had not been overplayed yet. Mm-hmm. It was a kind of a, an obscure top 10 hit that a lot of people had heard but hadn't reheard yet. Post-Sopranos Glee, we have heard Don't Stop Believing way too much, to the point where I can no longer listen to that oh, song. Oh, come on. I can't. I can't listen to it anymore. I can listen it's been, to it. <laughs> it's been overplayed at every karaoke bar. It's been overplayed on every jukebox. I can't stand listening oh, to I it anymore. I love that song. And so, but at the time, this was not the case. So I bring this song to the consultant, and the consultant is like, well, that's not a very good song to analyze because it wasn't that big of a hit. So he was basically telling me, that I didn't know what I was talking about yeah, yeah. when it comes to pop music, even though fast forward three years <laughs> and it's <laughs> the this, biggest thing ever. <laughs> it's possibly the biggest song in the market yeah, yeah. because it's a great song. It's very catchy. It has a story to it. it the, the chorus doesn't happen till later on. That's yeah. what I always kind of liked about that song is like it, it teases you with the chorus. Everyone knows, don't stop, believe it. That chorus doesn't, doesn't happen until yeah. way late in the song and almost no pop song does that. Right. The, the formula for a proper top 10 bubblegum summer hit is you start with the chorus. Right. You, like... Um, I need, I need somebody. somebody. Yeah, Bon Jovi. Living on a prayer. Uh, yeah, does living on a prayer start on the oh, chorus? Anyway. Shot to the heart. Yeah, exactly. So it, you start with the chorus. Yeah. You don't even have an intro because no. the chorus don't is... Don't bore us. Yeah, the chorus is the main singable bit. Yep. And if you lead with it, then... You, oh, and and you, if we had done that, we would have become famous rock stars. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I'm saying all this, but I... Because that's saying, your wound. You wanted a compliment <laughs> from him telling you that that was a good song. I <laughs> was in a band with guys that needed a certain narcissistic supply that I had before. <laughs> sure. But had given yeah. up on yeah. possibly because my narcissistic wounds were not as deep but listen, th- this is very interesting because everything I did musically after that was a lot more just for me. Yeah. And that was so healing, but all the time before that. So hearing that compliment now, when I heard it in December, it was no longer like an oasis and I come, ac- you know, like a desert and I come across this oasis. It was just actually like, it felt good, but it wasn't, um, yeah, it, it actually, to, to be honest, what used to happen when I would get a compliment back in those days. 20s, early 30s and stuff, is I didn't handle it well at all. Mm. I had this weird combination of, oh, wait, I actually don't want to hear a compliment. And and so I would get really awkward about it. Why didn't you want to hear a compliment? I'm sure because underneath it all, I'm like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I'm not worth it. Oh. Why, why are you saying this? You're validating something that actually is not true. Well, let me throw this out there. 
And before moving forward, I want to, I feel like I've been bragging this whole episode. I feel like I need to put myself down a little bit, which is I am not as good of anything than Birdo. Birdo's a better songwriter, singer, musician, (laughs) all that stuff. (laughs) This is ridiculous. Um, (laughs) So I'm teetering on Hackville in in everything I do musically. Um, I get by and I'm fine and I, and I, I enjoy it, but, but you know, so much better than that. (laughs) No, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not that great. And that's, so that's another problem factor is like, well, why would I think that I would be the next Billy Corgan anyway? So when you have a narcissistic wound and deep down you believe you're worthless and you're trying to distract yourself by garnering narcissistic supply by proving to everyone that you're good at something right. or superior or something. It's not actually filling you with self-worth. Mm-mm. It's just a distraction from it because it's not really in line with right. who you are or what you really need. And, and by the way, that's why those compliments didn't, it, they were almost counterproductive. Well, right. <laughs> and it could highlight the worthlessness. You know, like yeah. someone comes, it's desperately what you're actually looking for right. narcissistically. You're looking for someone to say, oh my God, you're so great. That's explicitly what you're searching for. Right. But when they explicitly confront you with it and you have to respond explicitly to their compliment, Mm -hmm. you just want them to admire you from afar and think and talk amongst themselves about how great you are. But for them to come up and say to to you, now you have to reckon with that. Wait, are you really not? I thought I was worthless. What? With the the question mark, you know? The question mark is... Am I worth it? Does this actually help me? And when you're confronted with it verbally, right, explicitly in your face, suddenly all that worthlessness becomes very felt. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I feel like that can cause people to push back on compliments. So, you know, one thing that would happen is I would write a song, go to an open mic night. This is like, you know, mid-20s or something, late-20s. Yeah, mid-20s. I would write a song, go to an open mic night, be very nervous, very nervous, get up, N- not make any eye contact, just kind of kind of rush through my song and then get off the stage. And then I'd have this mix of things. First, I was like, why isn't everyone coming to congratulate me about how awesome I did? Mm. But then mixed with, if anyone mentioned, hey, that was pretty good, instantly like this recoil of like, ah, oh, don't say that because it sucked. It was so dysfunctional. But, you know, I didn't know, right? I was just like, I don't know, I'm just trying to... Um, and it was because I wasn't actually trying to learn music and playing it and writing songs and things just because it was like what I was enjoying before I, all this got put in my head. It was, oh my God, maybe this is the way for the universe to finally recognize that I am worthwhile. And it took all those years, therapy, a whole bunch of bad experiences, all these things, plus, yeah, good influences from you and other things to get to a point where I was like, oh, oh wait, 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 wait. Do I like music? Yes. Do I like singing? Yes. Do I like my music? Yes, actually, I love my music. <gasps> it's like this sigh of relief, like, oh, maybe that's all I need, actually. Yeah. And after, the, the proof is then, that then, after, you're, then you get in the zone. Now you're in yeah, the zone where yeah. you're, you're creating and singing and collaborating within the zone of actually meeting your needs instead of chasing a, yeah. dra- instead of chasing a dragon. And, and so much so that when, when I did my next CD, Plastic Poly, with a different band configuration, but basically it was a, it was just a healthier process overall. I wasn't like, oh God, we gotta yeah. make this. We gotta. Yeah, I, I I noticed that with Plastic Poly that you were completely in the zone of 
a zone that I established, you know, a while back myself, yeah. which is music for us. Yeah. And if other people like it, great. Even to the point where I play to like just you one time. <laughs> But if other people don't like it, that's then okay. that's fine. You know, I, I'm okay. having a good time because yeah. this is fun. Exactly. And I, I, I'll try to get gigs that are good. But if we don't, then fuck it. Who cares? Yeah. And we're going to record an album because I want to listen to it. Yeah. I want us to have that, to hold up and say, look what we created. And, you know, I'll suggest other people listen to it. But if they like it or don't, you know, it'd be nice if they love it. But if they don't, it doesn't really matter because I'm in the zone. I'm in my my realm. I know what I, I know what needs yeah. I'm trying to meet here. Oh, by the way, the other thing that helped me over the years was actually the podcast because For the longest time, I only did it to do it. There was literally no reward other than me doing it. Yeah. Well, for the first number of years, no one was listening. So. A, no one was listening. There was certainly no money involved. Yeah. And so the only reason I was doing it was just to do it. Hmm. And that was the reward. And that is that whole like Zen in the moment, like, you know, Taoist. Hmm. Like it was, it was kind of like, why am I doing this thing? Because I'm doing it. And I enjoy doing it. Hmm. I'm doing it with a friend. It's there was no like, well, if I if we just do this, then finally someone will say I'm worth it. no. Yeah. And it was it's weird. I mean, I've never thought of it. I, this isn't like this is all stuff I'd already figured out. I'm just now realizing, yeah, wow, that was another case of me learning that in life I can do things just to enjoy them. Yeah, and not to tie it back to this, but. If people are thinking this, I suppose it's important to say, which is that one could argue that when you free yourself from the desperation of trying to be appealing or liked, you're probably more likable. Yeah. With the podcast, I, and I had never really drawn this connection until you just did, that when I started the podcast in 2008, I had already experienced 15 years of being a creative person without any uh, need or hopes of ever it being big or important or well-liked or famous or lucrative or anything. You know, with musicianship, it was at best breaking even and probably losing money on all the equipment. And, uh, right. you know, occasionally we'd get paid a little yeah. bit of money here and there, which was always nice, but it didn't offset the expenses and the time at the very least. And so when I started the podcast, it was a similar mindset of, I just want to do this. I, 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 I have a an itch to create this thing. It's a challenge. It's fun. I get to hang out with my friend. I get to learn things. There's a little bit of audience interaction. It's fun. Like, whoa, you know, 15 people listen to us yeah, on, yeah. on YouTube. Like, that's a huge deal. When yeah. you first start, like, I, uh, people will hire me sometimes as a consultant for their startup podcasts. They will talk in a way that reminds me of the way it felt for me when I was starting out. Because right. they'll... You know, they'll spend months and months planning and developing and getting everything together. And finally, they make an episode and they upload it, you know, and they're just refreshing the <laughs> browser. Click, try, click, click. Like how many people? And then they get, say, 30 downloads and they're ecstatic. Yeah. Now on a podcast. That's 30 strangers that. Just yeah, it's 30 strangers yeah. that. You know, like that's more people than I play to a lot. <laughs> right. That's a big deal. 30 yeah. people. It's a big deal. And so I remember how that felt when we were starting out. 
it, it all becomes kind of relative over time, which is kind of a bummer, right? It, at some point, it's like, well, 30, uh, whatever. I need 100. You get to 100. Yeah. Oh, and then 100. Uh, that's, that's small potatoes. It's, you know, it, other people have much more, and you're always striving. And maybe at a certain point, kind of plateau, I feel like I'm at that point where I definitely feel the group of people that are listening and, and don't want or need it to get bigger. Anyway, so... It's, uh, you know, I get that, I get that feeling. And, and I was like that when I started the podcast, I had no aspiration of anyone caring. I had no aspiration of anyone listening, but we had a great time. Yep. And over time, years, you could argue five, six years, we honed our skill and our voice and our shtick and our topics and the format. Like it was this, this freedom to just create for creation's sake right. and, to experiment and for you and I to develop chemistry mm-hmm. and for me to learn more, frankly, and know what to say and better equipment and everything. And by the time it was about time to actually start, quote unquote, making it. <laughs> and I remember saying this, I was like, you know, I'll go on Patreon and it'd be great if, I don't know, 10 people <laughs> become patrons. That'd, yeah. be, that'd, that'd be actual income. That's that'd, crazy. That'd, yeah. be, that'd be crazy. It'd be amazing. 10 people paying you money. But I remember saying to myself, if no one signs up, I just love doing this podcast. Right. It is, I'll be doing this podcast maybe for the rest of my life because I just enjoy doing it. It's right. it's fun and interesting, and uh, I learn things, I experience things, I get to express myself in a certain way, and I like it. So yeah. if, if, if I never make any money, it's great. And imagine if from the beginning I was desperately trying yeah. to make money and desperately right. trying to get big numbers like PewDiePie or yeah. other podcasts, Adam Carolla podcast, This American be, Life. Whether you're successful it, or not, it's a completely different thing. It might have changed my vibe and yeah. might have made me uh, not as good of a content provider and would have demoralized me and I would have dropped out a lot sooner. I, I got to say, like, look, I don't want to make it sound like I don't want to a make it sound like the only way you can become famous or whatever is by stopping caring. Because actually, right. many people are desperate and care and make it. Right. F- the flip side is also true. I don't want to make it sound like, like if you do certain formula, that's how you get big. Right, right. Right. But what I will say this is that, and again, it sounds very Eastern philosophy, but like at some, it's the Matrix. It's the when you, there there will be a point that you realize there is no spoon, mm-hmm. and that point only comes through things like self-introspection, therapy, really like experiencing things the wrong way and going like, because for me, it was the the no spoon moment was really when I heard and I saw that finished product and I was proud of it. I was like, oh, oh, I could have been making this for myself the whole time. Right. So the spoon is chasing the fame and the ultra, yeah. ultra success. How do I bend this spoon? I gotta get. Well, I gotta get fans. And you know the 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 thing is when I would whenever I would play with any of those previous bands. Of course, I was also because I was learning. But it wasn't just that. I was so stressed yeah. and so like well, in so my head and so you my know. spoon moment for me. I saw someone else seeing that the spoon wasn't there. Mm. I have a friend who has a cousin who was in a successful British band and they were touring and they were, they came to Seattle and I talked with them. They had a hit song at the time. Their, the band was called Reef, I believe. They were a one-hit wonder and they had a top 10 college hit and it, it was, in all respects, they had made it. They were on, right. they were on regular MTV rotation. They were touring. They wow. were signed. They were given money just to 
be themselves, to be so the they band. They were worth it. <laughs> and, and they had they had made it. Right. And at this point, I would have been maybe 23, 24. They were living the dream. And I talked to the lead singer. And I, I, I asked him, I was like, you have made it. My God, like, what's it like? Tell me. Mm-hmm. Long story short, he told me a life that sounded absolutely miserable to me. Oh, wow. <laughs> and also, he basically was saying, there's a chance that we won't get signed again for another year. Yeah. Because unless we have another hit, there's a, which isn't extremely likely, yeah. given the way the market works, then we're on our asses next year. And yeah, we made some money, but not money to retire on by yeah, any means. You right. know, we, we've made, in fact, a lot of the money that is it's coming just paying in back the record. Is, is paying back the contract, <laughs> yeah. paying back all the marketing and the recording and everything. So we're, we're, we're not getting that much of that money. And so he, he was telling me all this stuff. And he was even telling me about being on the road and that sounded miserable to me. <laughs> and I just thought, oh my God, this, this thing I've been chasing is an illusion. There is no spoon. There is no Even spoon. Even if I got there, it sounds miserable to me. And by the way, there there are folks for whom being on the road playing out is the thing. Yeah, Paul McCartney, for example, he loves Well, and even, even if you're not a Paul McCartney, like... Like, like I, I suspect even if he wasn't super famous, he still... He'd still be doing it, exactly. Yeah, he loves being Like, I'll stuff. give you an example of a different profession. Like, I can't imagine being a carpenter, but I've met many very happy carpenters. I could be a carpenter. Right, but I I can't imagine being happy being a carpenter. I could be happy. But I've met very many happy carpenters because when you describe to me what I have to do and all the things, it sounds miserable and I'm, I I just, my eyes glaze over and stuff. But when I have my conversation with someone about like, well, let me tell you about making shoeboxes is the same reaction from them. So, it's not the thing that you're doing. It's whether or not it's giving you that fulfillment. In our case, we get fulfillment from doing things that are creative, and especially if it involves friendship and stuff. And that is enough. That is the thing. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, that's great. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of wisdom to that, of living in the moment, really appreciating the journey and not the destination. Yeah. All right, let's take a break. And we get back, let's, let's finish this thing off. What do you say, Berto? Let's do it. All right, Birdo, we're back from the break. Let's do an OPP. What do you say? OPP. So these people became patrons in 2020 and have stayed patrons what ever a year. since. We have upper tier annual patron Ventricular. Whoa. We have, uh, from God knows where, we have Amanda, annual upper tier patron from Maryland. We have Ivy nice. from God knows where, Courtney from Los Angeles, mm. Anastasia from Great Britain, Fernando Ooh. From Phoenix, Arizona. Barbara from God Knows Where. Sonia, Songa from God Knows Where. Allison, upper tier annual patron from Colorado. Nice. Helena from Denmark, I believe. We have Brave Soul from God Knows Where. Josh from Great Britain. We have upper tier patron Allie from God Knows Where. JS from God Knows Where. Emma from Detroit. Kate mm. from Austin. Zelfie, up to your patron Zelfie from Staten Island, New York. Ah, nice. Antoinette from Toronto. Jason from Cupertino, California, <laughs> which I only know. Do they work in a garage? From the <laughs> uh, from the font Cupertino. Right? <laughs> Samantha from God knows where. Um, Samantha from God knows where. Paige from New York. Amy from Indianapolis. Colleen from Spring Valley, California. Mm. Vanessa from God knows where. Steve from British Columbia. Columbia. Ooh, I love Maruna 
annual upper tier patron Maruna from Norway. Ah. Oh, and uh, Steve and Vanessa were also I've upper upper tier. Always patrons. wanted to visit Norway. I have seen the most beautiful photos from Norway. Yeah. As a Swedish person myself, I have a need. A need for speed to <laughs> get to Sweden. Okay, so I would just want to race through because you know it's getting late, Berto. So I just wanted to. Let's do it. Answer it's it. It's cutting into our age time. Yeah, our age of empires. Um, so for me, the best compliment I've received recently is that a listener actually recently told me that they knew that I was a good person on the inside. I can't remember what the context was, but maybe it was even in the context of them criticizing me. And they yeah. were giving me feedback and they knew me well enough to know like, look, I, I want to be clear. I know you care about people. I know you're a good person. And I know you consider other people's feelings usually. So I'm not saying anything about you as a human being. And you did something that bothered me or something. And you took it as a great compliment because yeah. you fooled them. <laughs> yeah. But that's a, it's a huge, it's an yeah. important compliment because, and so to go down these questions, why was compliment meaningful to me? Well, it's because some people don't believe this about me. To the effect, Birdo. So before us right here, I framed a letter that I got from the Department of Health. Uh-huh. So let me read this, okay. this letter. So this is someone that thought that I was not a good person. Okay. Okay. So Department of Health. This might have been from me, actually. <laughs> Dear Kirkonda, the disciplinary authority for your marriage and family therapy therapist license credential. So I'm licensed through the mm -hmm. state of Washington. So the disciplining authority for your marriage and family therapist license credential has received and reviewed a report alleging you committed unprofessional conduct. Yikes. So just chiming in here. Any professional that's licensed medical or mental health wise can be complained against. You yeah. can complain to the Department of Health in their state and the Department of Health will investigate it, will look okay. into it. And if it's found that you did something unethical, then you can be sanctioned in some ways. You can be fined or forced to go back to school or even stripped of your license mm. completely, maybe even prosecuted if there's a crime. So someone complained against me and I have never had this happen before and have always figured eventually it will <laughs> because <laughs> yeah, that's odd that it hadn't happened. I know it is kind yeah. of odd because most, if not all public figures who are clinicians eventually have this happen. So that's why I frame this because I feel like it's a rite of passage, but just going yeah. on with the letter here. The report was closed without an investigation or disciplinary action. What? This report will not appear on your provider credential search webpage because no action was taken against your credential. Oh. The report is releasable, so they're basically saying you can get it because mm -hmm. it's public information, so I actually had to apply and pay a fee to... And I don't know what's going to... I haven't received the report, so okay. that they'll... Uh, but for, to put this in context, because I've been a part of these investigations, essentially somewhat, and I, my guess is, is that it happened during the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial because mm. there were a lot of people who were against me. There were mobs of people on Reddit, wow. on Reddit who were organizing hundreds of people, hundreds, Birdo, oh my God. who were organizing against me. That is frightening. Which is just weird because yeah. when you consider what I was saying during the trial, if you disagreed with me, fine. Yeah. But to 
want to destroy my life. And just think about what these people, when they actually, you know, it's one thing to mob up on the internet. It's another thing to actually make a complaint. Now, yeah. I don't know. Now, maybe the, maybe there was a valid reason as to why someone made the complaint. I don't, yeah. I haven't seen the complaint yet. I have a hard time believing that it has any merit, especially because the Department of Health, they didn't even look into it, you know, because <laughs> the, the, the way they worded it, it's, uh, the report was closed without an investigation. Yeah. <laughs> so they didn't even investigate it because on its face, it must have been, because it was so horrible. It must have been face. must have been unfounded. <laughs> it, it must have just been like there's no basis even for us to waste oh time investigating gosh. this. Now I don't know what it was, and we'll find out. But imagine someone taking action against me and knowing that my license can be stripped from me, and thus I can no longer see my clients. Right, because of your opinions about something. Because <laughs> I was speculating. Yeah. And highly caveating anything I was saying. Everything during the trial, I said. I do not know what really happened, but it kind of looks like this might have happened. But I don't know. Maybe this other thing happened. I said that annoyingly the entire time. That was because that's how I think. Like, no offense. I I like this about you, and I think most people that listen to podcasts love it about you. But you are not what I would call a controversial, outspoken figure. No, no. <laughs> you know? Compare, especially compared to the rest of the internet no. around, around the trial. I was... Um, you know, really trying to play it safe, not because I was trying to play it safe, but because I am extremely skeptical of any conclusion based off of extremely limited information, especially in a trial where everyone is biased clearly towards a particular argument. You know, yeah. there was really only one person that I could really trust. And that was their couple therapist who was on both of their sides, so right. to speak, or none of their sides. Everyone else was an employee of one or the other or yeah. had allegiances to one or the other. And they all could have been telling the truth. Anyway, point is, yeah. is that I'm guessing someone complained at that point. So because of what I ta said in the trial and all those caveats and all those question marks around everything I was saying, I was like, I don't know. Who knows what happened? I Someone wanted me to be unable to treat clients and for all my clients to be immediately terminated with me. That's what they were wanting. I don't know what they were wanting, but in all like I, I saw mobs of people talk. So when someone compliments me, even amongst a criticism and says, sure. I know you're a good person and I know you care about people and I respect you as a content provider, that is a big deal to me. Yeah, that's huge. <laughs> that's why a compliment like that is meaningful to me because there are people out there who do not believe that and that is devastating to me. Mm. I, you know, I, I, to, to think that anyone would think that about me, that they would think I deserve to have my license taken away from me is, it's devastating to me. I can understand that. So um, the other question, was the compliment you received about a quality you value? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Considerateness and respectability and ethical decision-making. And your inner self, like basically it speaks to the core. Like, cause you know, it is so interesting in this world. We can disagree, we can have all these things. But at the end of the day, there's got to be that inner core. And if someone doesn't trust that inner core, that's a problem. Yeah. And I, I said that, and I've been well over this in all the episodes that I talked about after the trial and all my emotional ups and downs. But, I, you know, if someone wanted to disagree or even heavily criticize me, but I knew that they basically understood my meaning or right. they basically gave me the benefit of the doubt you know, in regards to what I was attempting to do. But that's not the case in the internet. If you make anything that resembles anything of a mistake or a bias, they blow it up so big 
you know like um early on and i've again i've said this many times but when i first started to become you know semi-famous when i started watching love is blind and 90 Day fiance three years ago in passing when i was talking about i think a darcy episode i randomly said something that didn't make any sense yeah. i basically indicated that you had to be sexually traumatized or traumatized i think beyond a certain threshold to qualify for any trauma condition and of course, I do not believe that. Anyone who listens to this podcast, I hope, understands that there's no objective measure upon which we could say, well, you deserve right. to claim you have PTSD and you don't. It's all about your experience. You can be traumatized by something that other people would consider to be not very traumatizing. It's not a matter of scale or degree. It often is, but it isn't always, obviously. And 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 I I just I don't even that's not a question mark I have. I if someone has PTSD and they were traumatized, I, I'd never ask the question, do they deserve to have PTSD? So I said something very quickly, like a half of a sentence that was kind of saying <laughs> that, but not but right. anyone that knew me knew that's not what I was saying. Right. And so people started to complain in the comment section on YouTube, and Stacy was telling me about it. Like, you know, there seems to be a group of people that really didn't like that sentence that you said. And normally, I'm just like, well, I don't know. It was probably fine. Let's just move forward, you know. And Stacy and Stacy's like, oh, okay. And then a few days later, she's like, they're not letting it go. They're still on this thing that you said. And yeah. I'm like, I'm like, okay, fine. Let's let's listen back to it. So we listened back to it, and I'm like. I, I couldn't even tell what I was saying. It sure. was it was really a brain farty sentence. It didn't it wasn't clear and it was kind of out of nowhere. Yeah. And then I heard what people are saying and I was like, Oh, yeah, that's stretching it. You know, that they're assuming that's what I mean by that. And really anyone that knows me knows that I don't believe that to be true. You'd have to be a completely new fan to yeah. think that that's true. And why are you watching a channel of someone that you hate that much, you know what I mean? Or looking for so many problems. So again, I was just like, well, just let it go. A little bit later, I think I have the story right. A little bit later, Stacey tells me, they're not letting it go. Yeah. It, they're still, it's getting bigger. It's, it, they're, they're, they're getting other people who don't even watch your channel to come on your channel right. and and mob gang against you. Not only that episode, but all the other episodes you're doing. And I'm like, what? I mean, I had no idea that this was a thing. Oh, and, my gosh. Or I had an inkling, but I didn't think it would ever happen to little old me, you know? And the things they were saying, and I eventually would see this long Reddit thread, like a year later, which trauma re-traumatized me, but they were basically saying that I was essentially a rapist <laughs> or a rape or a rape, a rape enabler or something. Rape enabler, yeah. a rape apologist. Yeah. I was on the side of rapists. Well, dude, in the time, and and, and, yeah. I, and not only that, which of course is truly evil, but that I was a psychopathic clinician that was just yeah. causing obviously just tons of harm. I mean, they're like, I can't imagine being one of his clients. You know that kind of talk. Well, I can't imagine what you had to go through because I just just having experienced the tiniest tiniest version of that with the whole uh uh fat shaming no oh that but no i was thinking of the uh, bill cosby where uh or not even bill cosby michael jackson no i think it was bill cosby because oh. i think what i had said was something along the lines of uh, uh i was just debating that the one documentary kind of was minimizing some of his uh comedy accomplishments and i was saying well no i mean like i think that's counterproductive i think he definitely was funny he did comedy 
But then the commentary on the comments became, I can't believe he's justifying his actions. I can't believe he's excusing. And I was, I was like, well, what? Yeah, God. What? Yeah. So, anyways, it was, it was, and and you know, I was, that hasn't been the only one. And yeah, my I mean, misunderstanding pain has been very, very small. Yeah. But even that little bit is so frustrating. Yeah, because the thought of multiple people agreeing with each other that they have now discovered that you are truly an evil presence in the world. Right. And regardless of everything else that you've done, you are a monster of a human being based on extremely misunderstood information. And and I can't emphasize how brain farty of a phrase that I said in this one episode. It was so like jumbled what I I was clearly like I was going and then and then started talking about something else. And it was so like you really had to stretch your brain to attribute what I said. Yeah, it wasn't it was clearly it wasn't a great phrase but it wasn't like clear what i was saying to 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 wrap up the story eventually again stacy's like they're f- still freaking out what do we do and i'm like well i don't know and, and i think she suggested or i suggest something but we'll just say we'll just take out that one phrase cuz that, that that phrase is unneeded it it doesn't yeah. it was a weird thing that i just randomly said so stacy excised the 3 seconds or right. something that made the mob even even angrier <gasps> More They're fear. hiding the truth. Yes. So, to for someone I went back, the video's edited. Yeah, he's clearly hiding something. Oh my gosh! So, um, to and to this day, there are people who consider that to be um, like the truth. Do you remember when we did the the one with the, that con artist? who uh, pretended to be a, a very wealthy dude. The and Tinder swindler guy? The Tinder swindler, yes. Yeah. I made a comment, because you know, I like being vulnerable on this show, and I talk about what I think, even if what I think is stupid or wrong or whatever. I just say, here's what was going through my mind. And one of the things I was talking about in the early part of the episode is how when I was watching the show, I've, I, was, I had these feelings of jealousy in my mind, going, well, if, if, if she's going on Tinder and... And the options are billionaires who can fly her around the world. I was, in my mind, I was thinking, well, that's not fair. Yeah. Well, okay. So then the comments were like, I can't believe he thinks that people need to blah, blah. Even for myself, when I heard you going down that road, I was like, ugh, Berto, like, that's not a good look. I mean, it wasn't wasn't cancelable and people were taking it way too far, obviously. But I do remember going, uh, if I'm... If I'm sort of looking sideways at what Berto's saying right now, I'm sure the listeners were, will too. But yeah, the, to take it way beyond and to, well, but but actually from from my perspective, it's like but to there's a way to that, pretend like our brains are always nice and clean and we only think the best thoughts and everything. right, right, exactly. And then it's a good point that you're making. You're just like, look, as a podcaster, I made a choice to yeah. benefit the listeners by being real, and some of that's going to involve me disclosing things that I'm not exactly proud of and so that was one of those moments that's what you're saying uh yeah well basically i'm like listen i'm i'm just telling you what is going through my head that the fact is that and i maybe i'm in the 0.1 percent of men that would feel this way but i'm thinking if i were in the dating pool and i look around and like i'm one of 10 people and nine of them are billionaires who can fly people around the world I would feel like, oh crap! Now, is that right? Do I should that make me feel not worthy? No, of course not. Yeah. But that's what would go through my head. Yeah. But then, well, <laughs> your tone was—I don't know if it was explicitly this—but it was at least reminiscent of the incel argument that, oh, look, it's you know, women—they always go for 
the oh, jerk but I wasn't face. blaming her. I was just simply saying, like, oh my gosh. Well, I mean, if if those are the as I was watching the episode, yeah, yeah, which is totally <laughs> fine. I mean, it was it was a totally right. yeah. But fine anyways, but the, the commentary became but like they extrapolate. It's right. always about, and and I'm quite sure that these individuals have been traumatized by people who appeared right. Right. as good people, and then. They, you know, imagine you have you have a uncle or a friend of the family that is well respected, loved. You know, the Larry Nassers of the world, and everyone loves this individual. But then you, as a child, as a victim, learn, oh no, 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 no! Behind that veil, right. that trick, is a deeply troubled, problematic, victimizer, abuser, monster, psychopathic, sadist individual, and they are targeting me, right. and I'm trying to signal to people that I'm being harmed and no one's listening to me. So then you carry with you this- That baggage, yeah. <laughs> that, that baggage, which is normal, and pre-healing, you come across someone on the internet like myself, yeah. and- or or yourself and project a whole bunch of stuff. Well, but but there's a there's a first there's a media there's a median phase which is wow I might be able to trust these guys right they seem like nice people I will hand over my trust oh I just saw an indication of maybe there's something behind that right tr- that trustworthiness <laughs> that I can't trust this must be happening again right right I now see that they're an evil monster and then they mob together on the internet I, I will say similar to how you got so much out of that positive comment that you were mentioning what actually keeps me going 10 or maybe even a hundred X is because I'll see a comment that says you know what I appreciate is I appreciate how vulnerable or how honest or whatever or bared it was about this thing yeah. because either I too have struggled or I have hurt or whatever right yeah. because it's like Yep, that's why I do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll add to that, that I know a lot of people have been wounded by men in our audience and in the world. And to hear a man like yourself talk in masculine man ways from vulnerability and and also from emotions and self-disclosing, it can be healing to people listening out there because they feel that oh, maybe I can trust someone. Maybe other people can be trusted. Maybe love is out there. It's very helpful for people. And I have my own podcasters that I listen to along those lines. You know, there are voices that I, you know, you depend on over time to always be there and to be trustworthy. Why am I talking about that? Oh, when, when people recognize and tell me that they see my considerateness it it really helps me and the reason why is because you know to go on with these other questions that this article gets to the core of the matter is that the meaning the purpose of my life is to make the world a better place and the way that one of the ways that i'm doing that is through this podcast and if and if this podcast is not making the world a better place that sucks, but it really sucks if this podcast and myself are making the world a, a, a worse place. A worse yeah. place. <laughs> so when someone says that they see at the very least that I'm trying to make the world a better place, maybe I have or I haven't, but at least they can see that I'm trying and, and they see that and appreciate it, that validates my existence on this planet. The other part of this that I learned during the trial and I've learned you know, repeatedly throughout my life, particularly in therapy, is that vulnerability is the avenue to getting my needs met along these lines. Because mm. if I don't ever say anything along these lines, then people don't necessarily know that I need to hear it. Mm. So during the trial, I, w- 
you know, in various different ways, explicitly or implicitly disclosed to the listeners all that I'm saying right now. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it was a decision that I had. I didn't want to do it. You know, the, my impulse was to quietly sure. get sad and suffer and get angry. And I didn't want to talk about how it felt. I didn't want to be vulnerable because it, I didn't want to put myself out there. You know, right. it, it, I worried that it would give the people who hate me fuel. Ah, we've got him, you know, or now we really got to dig into him because we're almost there. We've almost snuffed him out as a content provider. If we keep going, we could really destroy self-esteem. You know, I worried about all those kinds of things because it was real. By, by the way, just a parenthesis there. Um, it, it, one of the things that I struggle to understand, although I guess I have been on the other side of the torches in some meaningless ways with movies I didn't like or something, but certainly not to go like cancel someone. It's just what I don't get is how difficult it is to just stop consuming the content you don't like as yeah. opposed to burning it to the ground. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are content providers that should be burnt to the ground like Andrew Tate. Is that his name? That's his name, right? Yeah. He was a content provider and should have been burned to the ground and now is. He's in Okay. Prison. Maybe, maybe that answers my question, which is that in their minds, you're an Andrew Tate. Well, right, but there are objective differences. Do you of know course, I mean? so, we know that, but I guess they don't know that. Yeah, I, guess, I don't know how you would confuse us. Because there's a big difference between, like, seriously, I've railed so hard about some movies I didn't like, but ne I never, like, wrote a letter or how can I get these people? Yeah. Like, you know? yeah, well, you and I are the same in this way, and 99.9% .9 of people are this way. It's a minority of people. It's a very, I, you know, it feels like there are a lot, but, you know, during the, tr so f let's say there were 300 people in a mob against me. Well, yeah. during the trial, there were arguably hundreds of thousands of people watching my yeah. channel on that. That were not actually doing the, uh, yeah. The so when you do the percentage, you're, you say 100,000 conservative, yeah. 300 is 0.3%, right? So, 0.3% of the listening audience wanted to destroy me. Okay. You know, that's, it's not, that's not very many people. And yeah. you'd almost expect some percentage of people just on the bell curve of life yeah. to want to destroy you. <laughs> when I answer these questions on this article, it gets at, you know, just, just this question. And I, you know, employ everyone out there, employ Employ everyone. It's late. My brain is going. <laughs> but I, I, uh, I urge, I you urge, <laughs> I challenge you listeners to answer these questions. What's the best compliment you received this year and why? What, uh, why was this compliment meaningful to you? Was the compliment you received about, the qual about a quality you highly value in yourself? Did it give you confidence in yourself? Did it help you see a way forward with a problem? Did it make you aware of a strength you hadn't previously perceived in yourself? When I answer and think about all these questions, when I think about this compliment that popped into my head about someone saying that I was considerate and that I was a good person, it blossoms into the meaning of my life. Right. It also blossoms into the importance of being vulnerable because for me to have received a compliment like that, I'm pretty sure the only reason why anyone would know to say that to me was because I was vulnerable mm. about my needs and about my sensitivities. So the path to getting compliments often is through vulnerability to right. alert other people about our needs and to know our needs even for ourselves yeah. so that we know what to be vulnerable about, right? And you know, I think that's, that's incredibly important.
to tell people around us, you know, I, I need to hear this because not because I need you to compliment me, but because my needs involve X, Y, and Z, right? And so for you, Berto, the the discovery is, huh, I now have established a more mature, healthy relationship with my creativity and my art, my singing, that has to do with my mom and my upbringing and my identity and getting my 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 health. You know, you, you didn't say this explicitly, but to be able to sing as well as you did before thyroid problems and surgery, in a sense, would be evidence that life is returning to normal, that your health is right. returning, that you're, you're not on the road to dying yet. Yes. Right? Right. And that's a big deal. Right. That's definitely, it, you know, and another thing, you were just mentioning this idea of vulnerability. And that was something that when I look back, I was mentioning these open mic nights and stuff. I would always, I, the feedback I was receiving quite often was that I appeared um, very conceited or very, you know, things like that. Because you know what was happening is I was so nervous that I would come up, not smile at all, just play my thing and just kind of get off. So people were misreading that as me being like, yeah, I'm so great. Listen to me. And in the process, appearing totally non-vulnerable, right? Instead of like coming out, smiling, hi, everyone. Oh, man, I'm just learning this song. So please be patient. Like having a little empathy, like engendering some empathy. And then I might have heard afterwards more positive feedback instead of, but you know, of course, I'm not blaming old Berto because he was just nervous and stuff. I'm just saying that's an interesting thing because of not projecting that vulnerability. No one knew that I needed anything. They just like, oh, this guy, he thinks he's the world. Right. So imagine if you had gone on stage and had gone through a lot of therapy and a lot of self-awareness and you walk up on stage and you're just like, hey, everyone, I'm terrified right now. I'm really nervous because I've been practicing a lot and I really want this to go well. A huge part of my self-worth kind of is wrapped up. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure I would have said all that. In my ability, but, uh, you know, no pressure. Uh, (laughs) And 15 years from now, I'm going to be analyzing this. (laughs) I mean, at the very least, people wouldn't see you as arrogant. No. And deceited and conceited. They would warm up to you. And, you know, if you pull it off well enough, it it would also voice your issue so that the issue would be less strong in your mind, you know. Anyway. Well, it's funny because there were a lot of other questions in this article, but we didn't even get to it as usual, Berto. <laughs> but I did want to—I did want to talk about one thing because actually, this this anecdote will end on this anecdote. So yeah. the last question is the embarrassment. Yeah, was you know, was the last time you felt embarrassed? And why? And I—I I can't. You know, the older I get, the less I get embarrassed by things, honestly. Because I just don't judge myself or other people in the same way I did right. when I was younger. And, same, same. Yeah. And so I, I really had a hard time. I was like, when was the last time I was embarrassed? I'm like, I, I mean, there were times when I, I don't feel super cool, but who cares, right? <laughs> My, mine was, uh, just really quick, mine was when, because I talked about it before, when kind of recently I forgot that I had met someone in person prior to the pandemic. Oh, okay, right. And then a work colleague who was like, I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe we're meeting in person. And they were like, what? Yeah. We met in person before the pandemic. Yeah, it's pretty classic. <laughs> yeah. uh, for me, what I thought of was the 60 seconds of silence that I accidentally edited into an episode <laughs> like nine months ago or something. And um, You were really bothered by that. Yeah, and then, and then I was further embarrassed by the fact that I yelled at it, all the listeners for not telling me about it. <laughs> yes, that was so awkward. <laughs> but this, so this story has been kind of, 
reemerging in my brain. I don't know why this mm-hmm. last month. And I had an urge to find a way to talk about it on the podcast because I don't know. It, it's Because you want to yell at people again. No, it's just, <laughs> it's just one of those moments that I forgot about and I find so, I don't know, kind of poignant in my mm. life. But okay, so rewind the clock back to 1994, maybe. I'm 23 years old. And I'm at a party with all my friends and house party. And that was, you know, Seattle people rent houses, friends, and we would rotate to different houses and have parties on Friday, Saturday night. And it's one of those parties and, you know, kegs and I don't know, 50, 75 people. And I, at some point, someone brought in a karaoke machine. And at at the time, karaoke- That would have been rare. Yeah. Oh my God. Karaoke in Seattle- at the time, there was one place that had karaoke, and it was a sports bar in Pioneer Square. Literally, no other place in Seattle had karaoke. Karaoke was a was a Japan thing. Well, I only knew about it from my Korean friends. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it, it later, 10, 20 years later, became much more of a mainstream yeah. thing in Seattle. But at the time, it was very rare. And as a self-styled singer... I loved the idea of karaoke, but had had rarely done it or never done it before. Maybe I'd done it once or twice. Um, and I don't know about you, but the first number of the first twenty times I did karaoke or karaoke, as it's more uh, accurately uh, pronounced, were very important to me. It, you know, the first twenty times <laughs> I I sang karaoke, I was like, okay, I need to nail this. It needs to be awesome. Everyone needs to think it's awesome. So I have had a, probably one to seven more beers than I needed to have that night, and the karaoke machine shows up, and I'm like, hey, I'm gonna sing a karaoke song, <laughs> and in my you know drunken stupor, I'm like, this is gonna be great. I'm going to sing a karaoke song and, everyone out of the water. and everyone's going to just be completely amazed at how great of a singer I am or something. And I don't have time to pick a song. And, you know, okay. anyone who sings karaoke, like literally 90% of a skill of a karaoke singer is knowing which song to select. Right. Because you might be able to sing a song, but it won't go over well with the crowd. Right. It'll be too melodramatic or boring. It'll have too long of a guitar solo in the middle or something. There's a lot that you need to pay attention to in terms of if you're really trying to entertain. Now, if you're just wanting to sing a song or just muddle your way, it doesn't really matter. But if you're actually trying to make it somewhat listenable to the people, mic placement, um, you might be able to sing it, but can you actually sing like that singer? Yeah, the right key for you, all these things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You might be able to hold the tune, but can you really sing that song? It's, you know, there's all these things to consider, but, and I had none of the awareness along these lines. And I, I just thought, <laughs> well, if I know a song, I can sing it. So I don't know why I did this, Brito, but I chose Evergreen by Barbra Streisand. Oh my God. This is a song that even on a good day, I don't know that well. <laughs> I mean, I'd certainly heard it a lot of to- times, you know. Oh my gosh. But I don't even, yeah, it's not even one of those songs that I, would possibly think I knew well enough. And the song is kind of meandering. It's, it doesn't sure. have a clear structure to, in terms of the melody. Right, right. It's not very easy to intuit, you know, sometimes with some songs. And it's you, not a like a sing-along-y kind of. <laughs> no. And it's real slow and real melodramatic. Yeah. And anyway, so I lock in on this song for some horrible reason. 
And then I proceed to interrupt everyone's conversations in the kitchen and outside oh, no. and say, you got to come into the living room. I'm, I'm going I'm to sing this Barbra Streisand oh, song. No. Yeah. So this is extremely embarrassing just to recall. I'm, just, I'm getting sweaty. Hand, oh, I'm getting sweaty palms. Just I'm remember. getting secondhand embarrassment. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I drag everyone in there. And, you know, my friends, God bless them, were so close that we do not mind poking fun at each other. Uh-huh. So just remember that point. And so I bring all my friends, I bring, and then a lot of ancillary people I'm bringing into the living room, fire up the karaoke machi- machine. I can't sing, I can't even sing the first line. I don't know, I don't even know when the song begins. It's, I know, like if, if the song were playing, I could probably hum along with sure, it. Sure, sure. But when you're karaoke, you're on your own. Yeah. You got to you got to come up with the tune and everything on your on your own. And especially some of those odder songs like you're like wait, oh, was that how does what? Yeah. <laughs> it's not like a Beatles song from 1964 no. that follows no. this very familiar format, you know. And very quickly my friends turn on me and start oh. bo- booing me, you oh know what I mean? God. And rightfully so. I mean, it was all <laughs> and you know, I I laughed it off, but sure. on the inside Berto <laughs> I was like, I was like, you fool. What? It was one of those moments where your narcissism just comes into full view and you're like, why did I even think that that would go well? What, what narcissistic island of (laughs) denial was I on where I thought I could literally do anything? (laughs) I I, I could, I could pick any song and uh, just nail it and not only pull it off but have it go out you know swimmingly right. well i i had this vision that it was just going to be this glorious you know again i blame it on the one to seven on the bossa nova too many beers that i had but it also you know was at least sort of in line with my sober self you know it was, <laughs> it was one of i oh so gosh. the poignancy of it i think is it was a mirror to me sure that made me rethink my impulses and my the next time I had that estimation <laughs> that I would be able to pull something off, I had this. I was like, "Remember, ever, <laughs> remember, remember Evergreen, <laughs> and that you need to drag everyone in on it, <laughs> right?" So in the future, yeah. when I would sing karaoke, I had extremely <laughs> humble expectations as right. to what was going to happen. You oh know, because even if I did pull it off. I'm like, well, there's also a pretty good chance no one's going to care. You know what I mean? So it was horrible, but apparently needed for my personality to experience (laughs) when I was 20. I was actually probably younger than 24. I was probably like 20 years old, actually. Now that I think about it, maybe maybe 21. (sighs) So, yeah. That's the most embarrassed I've, you know, it's one of the most embarrassing moments of my entire life. Sure. That sounds embarrassing. (laughs) All right. Well... That does it for that episode, Berto, in which we talk about compliments. And I hope y'all can think about it for yourself because we're trying to get to our needs because when we understand our needs, then we understand how to meet our needs. And do that and take care of yourself because you deserve it.